Hello, everyone. You're listening to Elisa Unfiltered Living Life Out Loud, the podcast. My name is Elisa curry and I am here today speaking from the heart to inspire and motivate you to be your best self. There is so much more to life than the nine to five daily grind, and I want to share all of my secrets with you. So let's get started. podcast fam. How's everybody doing today? <laughs> um, I know you're all wondering how I'm doing and I'm doing just okay. I'm actually not great. Uh, relatively okay. I mean, I have my health and I have my job and my friends and all things considered I am okay, but there's just like, there's been a few curveballs that have been thrown in my direction and I'm not exactly sure how to dodge them right now, or maybe I'm not dodging them at all. This month is like, I've had to overcome some adversities, like some very challenging things going on behind the scenes. And there's one situation in particular that I unfortunately can't share the details with you yet because it's still like a real life thing that's going on that involves my career. Um, And it's not resolved yet, but this thing has really hooked me and I just can't seem to shake it. And I wish I could just scream out every single thing and every single detail that I hate about this situation and how it's like blowing my mind and like breaking my heart at the same time. But I'm going to remain professional and just let you all know that I am a bit off. Um, Also, my best friend's dad is in the hospital. He's battling for his life and he's in the intensive care unit. Um, And he's, he's really struggling And therefore, my girlfriend is just in a very desperate, heartbreaking place, which is heartbreaking for me as well. It's it's a day-to-day roller coaster, and with a heavy heart, I'm sending all my love and positive energy to my friend Jen and her dad. All of that being said, it it's also been a long time since it's just been me sitting here talking to you all. (laughs) For the past several weeks, maybe it's it's been like two months actually. Um, I've been chatting with guests who have shared inspirational and unique stories, which by the way, have also been lessons for me. And so it feels a little bit strange for me to just be like solo on the mic today. (laughs) I'm like nervous. Um, and because I've, I've been so distracted with all the behind the scenes stuff, I, I can't seem to figure out a topic that's resonating with me right now. It's like, okay, universe, I know that I'm struggling a bit with balance and I know that I'm out of alignment, but like, how long is this going to last for? Honestly, it honestly seems like the entire tail end of March and the entire month of April so far has been turned upside down. Like, does anyone believe in the power of the cosmos? Because if you believe in astrology, then you're following the reports that Mercury has been in retrograde. And I make fun of this on my Instagram a little bit, but... Now, I honestly know nothing about astrology. However, I think it's super cool and I believe in the power of the universe. So maybe this retrograde is behind all of these backwards feelings. Like, if you don't know what the Mercury what Mercury rec- retrograde is, I can't talk. Um, yeah, I don't really know either. So I Googled it. And if you're having any weird feelings or emotions lately around communication or working with others or in relationships or travel, then you should Google it too. Anywho, okay, all of that being said, 
I think what I need to talk about for this podcast is the subject of adversity. I feel like because I'm facing it these days, I need to talk about it. Adversity in everyone's life is inevitable. It's, I, I believe it's defined as like unfavorable fortune or fate or uh, misfortune or distress or an unfortunate event or circumstance like along those lines. Um, and a couple weeks ago, I actually spoke with a very special guest to the podcast. His name was Toph Evans. If anyone listened to it, yay. It's very good. And, and we talked about he, how he manages adversity in his life um, and what overcoming those adversities has taught him. He says, and I quote, when we go through any sort of mental health struggles, we get stuck in this egocentric paradigm where we actually think we have it really badly. When really, everyone in the world goes through stress. It doesn't matter if you're a 16 year old going through final exams or myself or you're a barista or you're a CEO or a school teacher. It doesn't matter. You're going to go through stress in life no matter what. And once you realize that, we're all in this together. And honestly, I loved what he said so much that I, I listened to it. I listened to him say it like 10 times in a row because it resonated with me so much. So yes, I do get into an egocentric space. And I do think that I'm the only one in the world that could possibly be feeling so shit. <laughs> but that is really never the case. And I'm making things worse by placing walls around my thoughts and burying myself in stories that aren't true or giving power to things that I can't control. So giving power to a person, a place or a situation that I can't control. So Toph, you're so right. Everyone is going to go through stress in life. It doesn't matter who you are or what you are. You will need to face adversity. And yes, this unites us. The more I reflect on this, the more I wake up, the more aware I become of the wounds that are in me that are causing me stress. And with awareness, I can begin the healing process. Okay, sounds easy, right? <laughs> well, it is a process. Well, at least it, it has been a process for me. And with that, I, I think I'd like to share with you a story. It's a story of the most profound piece of adversity, the most stressful, difficult situation I believe that I have faced in my life. Um, it might not even seem like the worst thing that's ever happened to some of you, but the amount of power I gave it was life-changing. It impacted me in a very profound way. Um, and my reaction to it and how that contributed to my demise. So, but first I want, I want, before, before I say that, I, I, I do want to point out that stress came to me in many forms growing up. It's not like my life was bad or anything. I was very fortunate growing up. I live in Canada. I grew up in the middle class. We always had food, water essentials. I was relatively spoiled with a swimming pool. We had a ski chalet, um, an opportunity to be active in extracurricular activities. I mean, but again, like no matter who you are, you will face stress in your life. So my first real exposure to stress was in grade school. I was, I was very badly bullied. There was this kid, his name was Anthony, and he would beat me up and he stole my belongings and he burned my books in the school playground. Um, he also turned all my classmates against me. And for like half of grade three and pretty much all of grade four, I had no friends 
every recess, I would ask the kids if I could play with them and they would get into this huddle. I like, I can totally remember this. I was like so young, but they would get into this huddle and they would vote. Um, and they always voted no. So everyone got a vote and they would say no, maybe next recess or something like that. So I would spend my recesses sitting alone against the wall or in the library reading. And I basically had to endure the grade school life that you see in the movies, basically. And this was stressful, you know, like when you're nine years old and someone writes a hate letter to you and gets the entire class to sign it. It really can be one of those pivotal moments that make or break a young girl. And thankfully, my fight or flight response to, to all of this was to fight. And I, I remember when I got this letter, I marched directly into the principal's office so fast because like I finally had proof that I was being bullied. And <laughs> it was, this actually was also one of the first times in my life that a person of authority, like a person I looked up to, the principal, let me down. He actually said thank you for the letter and like nothing came out of it. There was no, there was no punishment or, or like anything. I continued to be bullied. It wasn't until like the summer after grade four that I met my best friend Amber um, and everything changed. I said this in my podcast with her that she saved my life and she really did because she was the first friend I ever had that actually loved me. And we hung out with each other like every second that summer and basically every second for the past 26 years. <laughs> oh my gosh, time flies. Um, also growing up, um, another piece of adversity was when my parents divorced. I was 12 years old. My dad had an affair with his secretary and left my mom. And this ripped the family apart. It, it, I didn't even really know what was going on. I just remember being so angry and I wanted to rebel against the world, which I did with drugs, alcohol, and cigarettes. And yes, all of these things came into my life when I was like 12 or 13 years old. I had no coping skills for this. In addition to uh, divorcing my mom, my dad also divorced us. So we, my brother and sister, became a hassle and um, caused him and his wife so much stress that we weren't even invited to Christmas dinner at their place anymore. And it was just too stressful for everybody. So at 12 years old, I lost my relationship with my dad and it traumatized me. Um, but these two examples aren't the biggest. They both have taken some therapy to work through, but they aren't the biggest. The biggest was when I failed to make the Olympic team for freestyle skiing for the 2006 Torino Games. So I think it's time for me to finally tell the story of what happened all those years ago. <laughs> okay, let's uh, start at the beginning. Uh, I'm not exactly sure if, I, if I've ever told you guys this, but maybe I have. Anyways, from a very young age, all I wanted to do was go to the Olympics. Um, I remember watching the Olympics. I remember watching gymnastics when I was little and I wanted to be a gymnast. I was actually so obsessed with it. So my mom put me in gymnastics and I was really good. I was strong and daring and acrobatic and all the qualities of an excellent competitive gymnast. <laughs> the one ingredient that I did lack was flexibility. I'm basically like the most, the least flexible human being on the planet. <laughs> and, my competitive gymnastics teacher told me that I had until the end of the summer to work on getting my pubic bone to touch the ground in the splits or else I was kicked out of competitive. 
Okay, so I wasn't allowed in competitive anymore if I couldn't do the splits all the way to the ground. Oh my God, challenge accepted. So I worked really hard. I stretched every day, um, trying to be more flexible. And then at the end of the summer, she tested me and um, I think I was like an inch away from the ground. I mean, maybe I was like five inches, who knows? My memory was like, I, there's this tiny little weenie space. And I thought it was okay because I was just so good and everything else had improved so much. Um, but nope, <laughs> she was true to her word and I was out. <laughs> I think I was eight and my dreams of going to the Olympics were over. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. Fast forward 10 years when all the gymnastics work actually finally paid off because I started to ski competitively and dedicated my life to the sport of freestyle skiing. So that's like the mogul. Uh, I was a mogul specialist. So the bumps and the jumps. And finally, in 1998, 10 years later, I made the national team. So I skied my entire life, just like I said, we like growing up, we had a ski chalet. It was in Tremblant. And so with my acrobatic childhood, I developed and advanced really quickly in this sport. Uh, I started competing full-time on World Cup within four years, and I was on track to make the 2006 Olympic team. Uh, I actually won my first World Cup in 2004 and was consistently making finals and challenging the world with my acrobatic skills. I do hold a world record out there, people. I do hold a world record in this sport. I was the first woman in the entire world to compete a back full at a World Cup event. So a back full, um, also known as a full twisting backflip is when you do a backflip with like a 360 spin. So you spin upside down and then land. So you're flipping and spinning at the same time. It's an amazing trick. All the guys were doing it. So my goal was to bring it into women's moguls. So I did. Now, looking back at my lead up to the Olympics, I felt like, I don't know, I was kind of like a classic example of an elite um, athlete in Canada with partial government funding and parents that had money. So I was carded, meaning the government paid me a small allowance to help me train full time. Um, and my parents helped me as well. Like, I believe my dad gave me like 500 bucks a month to help with living expenses. Um, I also got a job and I served at a bar in Ottawa during the periods I was at home from training. And I put that money towards my ski career. And then both my mom and dad helped with like fund the rest of it. So um, for the record, it costs about $30,000 a year to ski for Canada during that time. And this was back in the early 2000s. So it's even more now. Uh, and it's a lot of money. So not only do you have to be a talented athlete, but you also have to be rich <laughs> or have rich connections or parents to get you to the top. For the record, my four years on World Cup were not funded by Freestyle Canada at all. So I took my training seriously. I moved to Cal um, Calgary uh, to train with the National Sports Center for two years. And then I was in Whistler for extended periods of time. We were always traveling. We were always on the road. It was skiing, training, skiing, training, eating, sleeping on repeat all day, every day. I dedicated my life to the sport. It was like all that I knew. I honestly, I watched my friends grow up back home. They went to school. They partied. They got jobs, started like the real world and I missed out on all of that because I wanted to be an Olympian. So my life path was completely different, um, but I loved it. And don't get me wrong, skiing on the Canadian team was some of the best years of my life. Uh, I was I was living my dream and I have no regrets. Um, it was an insanely good time and I, and, I, and I loved it. But 
there were some bumps in the road. So the biggest was when my dad stopped contributing um, funding towards my career. So he always wanted me to go to school and get a career and make money. So one day he decided to test me and I, I failed the test. So you see, I was, I was home for four days during the winter. It was like in the fall or something actually. And he wanted me to go and visit my, like my grandmother. So his mother, um, he said, I, you know, don't take the time to visit them. And if I didn't go that he wouldn't give me, um, another dime, he wouldn't give me any more money. So those four days at home happened to be the only rest days I had between like two super high volume training camps. And the second I got home, I remember I got sick and I decided that I'd stay in bed and rest and not see or visit anyone. Like I didn't do anything those four days except for like recuperate. Um, I had to do what was best for me and what was best for me to perform my best. Um, but this was seen as like an act of defiance against my dad, I think. And, and so he stayed true to his word and he pulled the plug on supporting me. So no more, no more money. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> okay. New stress. Now, how the hell do I find, uh, find, you know, X amount of dollars to fund my season? Well, this experience did have a silver lining because it taught me that I can actually survive on my own to some degree. Like my mom was still very much invested in my career and gave me every single cent that she could afford, which ultimately saved me. But what I also did was I dove headfirst into finding sponsorships. So this was grueling, like, and it was time consuming, especially in a time where Wi-Fi wasn't a thing. Like there was no such thing as crowdfunding or anything like that. It didn't, I didn't even have a laptop and like smartphones weren't invented yet. <laughs> I, I was, however, fortunate enough to have found two major sponsors. The first was a private investment company and the other was Canada Post. So those two people help, those two companies help fund my life for the next four years. So there I was, finally skiing World Cup, training, skiing, eating, sleeping, traveling, training, competing on repeat for years and years. And what happened was as... The closer the games got, the more pressure and stress I started to hold. I became overwhelmed with the thought of, will I qualify for the team? So qualification started in the winter of 2005. And like, just to like briefly summarize, like that was basically 14 months before the games. Um, and each competitor could use like four World Cup results during the qualification period to secure their spot on the Olympic team. So Within that period, I mean, there was summer, summer break, summer training. There was like 13 World Cups or something. So I had 13 World Cups to secure uh, my four best results. And at the time, I think I was ranked second in Canada on the women's mogul team. And I felt pretty good about that going into the season, but I knew that I needed to perform. Anyways, the stress, however, was starting to consume me and it started to manifest negatively within my body. Um, as I said, all I... All I ever wanted growing up was to go to the Olympics. And now this was my one and only chance to do it. So only four women go to the games every four years. So I had to be the best. I had to be my best, but I didn't know how to do that. Especially because the pressure was literally creating this overwhelming anxiety within me. And I was having unbearable chest pain. I couldn't sleep at night. I was physically exhausted 100% of the time. And I, I like, 
I could hardly concentrate. So I ended up talking to the team doctor about what the stress was doing to my body and my mind, and he referred me to a psychiatrist. So I started to see this woman for stress management, and she immediately prescribed me an anti-anxiety, anti-depression drug called Effexor. So I was reluctant to take it, but I had to do something because the competition season was coming up and I was not in a good place physically or mentally, so I took it. And the drug helped. Um, I did notice an improvement, a very small improvement, which I communicated to the doctor only for her to like increase the dosage. And before I knew it, I was taking the highest dose possible of this drug. I think it was 300 milligrams a day to manage. Um, and at this point, there was like I was feeling some serious side effects to taking it. It was not good, um, but it was helping with my anxiety and I was able to focus on my job of being a professional athlete. So the side effects sort of became tolerable, just became something else in my life that I needed to manage. So in the summer of 2005, um, with that, so we're still, um, so now we're, this is the summer before the games. We're like, I don't know, eight months out. I had a bad crash during training um, in Teen, France, summer camp. And I separated my AC joint in my left shoulder. So the acromioclavicular joint. Um, and it was so painful. Um, not the end of the world, but it would take like 10 weeks to heal. 10 plus weeks to heal. And this would mean that I would miss out on a huge bulk of the summer training, especially the water ramp season, um, which is where we practice jumps into the water and qualify our invert maneuver. So like, we hit the water ramps and land in water. It's pretty cool. But all of a sudden I was thinking, oh shit, maybe I won't be able to qualify my back full. Like that would be tragic. So this, this thought like tormented me. <laughs> like I couldn't even, at the time I couldn't even lift my arm to shoulder level without excruciating pain. And like training of any kind was like a major challenge. So I was forced to slow down and to rest. And uh, I, I, you know, I, I kind of turned to alcohol a little bit. So, so we're six months away from the games. I haven't qualified yet. Um, I'm dependent on anxiety medication. I have a dislocated AC joint and I'm sitting at home drinking. Hmm. <laughs> that was a tough summer. It was the first time I started to doubt that I could do it, that I could make it. But I got through the summer 10 weeks or so later, I was healed up and I got back into the groove of of training like pretty quickly. So, um, so I'm back to full on elite athlete life, athlete mode, working my butt off, trying to catch up. And the next thing I know, I'm standing in the gate of the first world cup of the season. <laughs> um, so this was December, 2005, three months before the game, like two and a half months before the game. Um, and we had, I think there was four events to qualify or something like that. It was four events. So, sorry, I just had to drink some of my coffee there. <laughs> um, I was now, I was ranked third in Canada. And all I needed was like one solid result. And I was locked in like one or two would be even better. So coincidentally enough, we're back in teen France. So this is the... Um, for the first event, but the injury was so far away. That was the same place that I had torn my shoulder. 
Um, but I was so focused and ready that I didn't even give it one thought. I actually loved teen. So I'm standing in the gate. I'm so confident and ready. I loved the course. Training went so well all week and I was ready. Now the format for the event was like a single run qualifier and then the top 12 women advanced to a single run final. So it's like two runs to the podium. So the starter calls me into the gate. I hear the judges are ready. The timing's ready. I'm ready. And I vaguely heard the starter like start the countdown. He was like three, two, and I was gone. Like I ripped out of the gate and I started skiing the mogul super aggressively. I was in the moment. I could feel my body doing every single thing it was supposed to. And I crossed the finish line and I heard like, I, I just, I knew I had the best run of the week right then. Like I'd skied the best. I heard the crowd. I was so happy. Um, and lo and behold, I actually qualified in second position. So perfect. <laughs> that meant for finals, I was going to be the second to last to descend, which is a very good position to be in. Finals rolls around. I feel the exact same way. I'm ready. I know the course. I know my plan. I push out of the gate with so much confidence again, and I nailed every single turn. Um, and both my jumps were nearly flawless in the air. Um, but my, my second jump, it was like a 360 mute grab. So it, you do a spin and you grab your ski and like tweak it. It's kind of cool. It's hard to explain, but, um, I, I love this trick and it was relatively easy for me and I nailed it in the finals. However, when I landed, so when my skis touched the ground, something horrible happened. I must have landed like in like a, a soft pile of snow or slush or something because it was like the snow grabbed like my right leg, my right ski and started like pull me off course. And the only thing I could do to stay on my feet and not like fall was to follow the direction my ski took me. Like it totally went zing, like flying in the wrong direction. And in a flash, I had changed lanes which is like a massive deduction in mogul skiing. So I crossed the finish line in a different mogul line from what I started. Now, the deduction for changing lanes is super big. <laughs> and my finals result was 12th. So I was the last place of the finals. And I was like, fuck. <sighs> How did I blow that so badly? I mean, I analyzed that video a million times. I have no idea what happened. It was just one of those things that just happened sometimes and just happened to me and whatever. There was nothing I could do. Um, one minute I was like podium potential and the next I was flying into the wrong lane and coming 12th. So, okay, that was such a disappointment, but there was still three events left. Um, so where, where do we go next? We went to Lake Placid, New York, I believe. And that, that was okay. Like I, I, I had a pretty good result. I finished eighth, not bad. Um, however, the girl that was ranked in fourth, uh, for the Olympics came third, she got a podium. So that bumped her up pretty high and it actually bumped me into fourth spot. So four girls go to the Olympics. I'm in fourth spot right now, even with the eighth. So, um, starting to feel even more pressure, right? So event three was, I believe in Deer Valley, Utah. And I blew that event. I, I didn't even make finals. I think I came like 28th or something. Maybe it was 38th. <laughs> I don't know. Um, now the real pressure was on. I still hadn't secured my spot and there was one event left. And this event was in Madonna, Italy. So all I needed to do mathematically 
um, to go was to get a top 12 and I was going to go. So this was actually something that I, I did all the time. Like I was pretty much always in the finals. So there was a lot of there, like the pressure was there, but it was, I knew it was something I could do. It wasn't like insurmountable. Um, I mean, if I had to win gold, like that would be like crazy. That would be very challenging, but you know, coming in top 12. Okay. I can do that. So I remember the course in Madonna to be quite difficult. The moguls were like super icy and the jump landings were kind of short. And there was like, there was also this like pretty steep section in the middle that I was like afraid of. And I had trouble skiing properly into that bottom jump all week. And I was kind of freaking out, but nonetheless, the show always goes on and I'm a competitor. So I was in the gate last qualifying event of the year. All I needed was 12th place to finish or better. And I'm going to the Olympics. So, the starter calls me in. I hear the judges are ready, the timing's ready, competitor ready, three, two, one, go. And I, I pulled out of the gate and I'm focused and in the moment and I'm doing everything right. I, I skied strong and aggressive. I, I must admit I was a little slower than usual. I was a little bit more conservative. Um, in the end, I crossed the line thinking like, yes, like I did it. I was so happy and you have no idea. I, I had the best performance on that course by far for the entire week. And I could feel like the stress, like melting away. I was so relieved and like proud and all of the things. So, um, for those of you that watch mogul skiing, you know that it is a judged sport. So my performance was now in the hands of the judges and there just happened to be a lot of good performances that day. So almost the entire field hit their runs. And at the end of the qualification round, I, um, I was 14th. So I missed it. Uh, in addition to that, the girl who, um, was ranked fifth on team Canada, uh, for the Olympics. So the runner up, she got like in the top five or something like that at the event. And it bumped me out of the Olympics. So meaning like overall, I was not going to the games. Now, like I, I, I wish I could describe to you the exact feeling I had in the pit of my stomach when I looked at the result sheet and saw that I was 14th, but I can't like that feeling. If I think about it hard enough, like it's actually still alive in me. Like I still feel it. <laughs> um, like just saying this and reliving the story has like revived it a tiny bit inside of me. It was like the most disgusting mix of emotion that I've ever felt in my life. Like it was disbelief. It was horror, anger, shame, disappointment. But I think like worst of all, it was self-hatred. Like I sat there and I felt lost. I was lost. I didn't know what to do now, but then I sort of like snapped out of it and I realized that I couldn't be around anyone, especially the people celebrating their Olympic births. So like I went back to my hotel and I crawled into bed and I put on season five of Seinfeld. And I know that might seem a bit random, <laughs> maybe a bit odd, but uh, it was literally the only thing I could think of doing in the moment. And I just like, I watched that show marathon style for five hours I was probably still in my ski clothes, like my long johns under the blankets. Uh, anyways, like I think at around 10 p.m., 
my coaches finally came knocking on my door. No, my coach. It wasn't my coaches. It was just my, my one coach. He came to the door and I opened it. And I like, I honestly, I, I had no idea. I wasn't sure what to expect him to say or do or anything like that. Like this tiny voice inside of me was hoping that maybe they were like, they had this meeting and the coaches were going to discretion me onto the team because they knew I was a contender and that they believed in me, but that didn't happen. Mm. What he did say, however, was the last thing on earth I could have imagined. He, he stood in the doorway and this is my coach from the past four years. Like I worked with him every single day of my life training. I trained hard with him for him, for Canada. Like I fucking loved him and he was the best coach I'd ever had. And he stood in the doorway no hug, no, I'm sorry, no, how are you doing, Elisa? Like, what he said was this. He was like, what are you doing? And I responded with, watching Seinfeld. And then he continued with, like, he said, you're going to have to find some strength in you to pack up all your things. There's going to be a bus leaving here in about an hour to drive you to Milan where you're going to fly home. And I was like, what do you mean fly home? I don't have a ticket. Like, why do I have to leave right now? Like, this is stupid. And he was like, what he said was, well, we want to make sure that the mood stays cheerful and happy for those that are going to the Olympics. It's all about the Olympians now. And we don't want any of you to bring them down. So you'll need to pack up your things and meet out front to load the bus at 11 p.m. And that was that. Like, he left. And I was dumbfounded. Like, what the actual hell? Okay, so so I packed up my things. I loaded the bus and I left. And it was probably in that moment that I realized that nobody within Freestyle Canada actually gave a fuck about me. And that I was not going to get support from that association through this, from my coaches, from anybody. Um... Unless maybe it was someone would give me another dosage of meds or something. Like, I don't know. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm traumatized. I'm on the bus. Four and a half hours later, we pull up to the Milan airport. It's like 3.30 a.m. I'm exhausted. And we get dropped off. The bus drives away. And then there's me and like six other people just standing there. Now... I was the only one on the bus that had a chance of going to the Olympics. Um, there were some like younger athletes there or developing athletes that, and they, they had flights already booked and stuff. There was also like a, um, I think a team physio, there was some other like support there. Um, but I didn't have a flight. So I sat at the, on the airport floor for like an hour and a half until the ticket window opened at 5am or so. And I remember walking up to the lady and saying like, I'll take a one-way ticket to Ottawa, please. <laughs> and of course, there was like nothing left. So I had to be routed like 3,000 times bouncing all over the world just to get home. But like this particular Air Canada employee was so helpful. She was like the most helpful woman I'd spoken to ever. And she she did everything possible to get me home as fast as possible. So like pulled all, pulled all the strings, got me a ticket back to Ottawa, leaving like in two hours or something. And um, it cost me $2,370 for the one-way flight. I actually still have the ticket too. 
<laughs> it was before like e-tickets were invented. So it was one of those like super cool, like old airplane paper tickets. Remember those? Um, I don't know why I kept it. Well, I guess I do know why, but it's just something I like having it for some reason. I, I, I need to hold on to it. I don't know why. Maybe one day I'll let it go. Not sure. Anyways, I went home and my poor mom, I swear to God, she likely felt worse than I did. Um, somehow she held it together and just like hugged me in the airport. I, I have the best mom in the entire world. She was always there for me. She let me do my thing. She like, even though she was petrified of me flying down the mountain, flipping and spinning at high speeds, she like kept her fears to herself and just believed me, believed in me. <clears throat> I don't know. I don't know like what I would have done without her support. Um, during that time, I, 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 I very well could have died. I mean, if it wasn't for her, I like, I felt dead inside. She really helped me and just let me be me through this whole thing. So I felt like I had lost the hardest part about not going to the Olympics. The, the thing, the thing that got me was that I felt like I lost my identity like all I ever wanted to do was go to the Olympics and I blew it. So who was I now? A nobody. I was nobody. I was nothing. I was worthless. Like not even worthy enough to, to have my coach come and give me a hug and like support me through it. So that's how I felt at the time. I mean, when I got home to my mom's house, I was so tired from the travel that I like went and I immediately laid in my bed and I, I remained there for three weeks straight. <laughs> I... I only left my bed to eat and use the washroom and maybe shower once or twice, if that. And I, I just, I had no feeling inside of me. And I remember thinking that I was just a shell, like I was emotion, emotionless. And this might sound like really dramatic and maybe it was, but that was how I felt. Like this at the time was my reality. This is what I was doing to myself or this is the situation I put myself in, whatever, however you want to see it. Um, and it was, it was not good. So within those three weeks of laying in bed were the, were the, were the Olympics. So if you're wondering whether I watched them on TV or not, what do you guys think? Do you think I watched them? <laughs> the answer is yes, I did watch them. Um, I watched my good friend and fellow teammate Jennifer Heil win the gold medal at that event. And I cried for her. I was so happy. I loved her. She was my roommate and she deserved to win more than anyone out there. Um, the emotions I felt watching were also indescribable. <clears throat> All I knew was that I had to watch and I did and I got through it. Probably because Jen won, to be honest. Um, the day after the Women's Mogul event, Jen actually called me. She was so busy with interviews and media spots and celebrating and she actually took the time out of her you know gold medal winning circus of a day to call me we we only spoke briefly but she just wanted to make sure i was okay um she apologized to me for not calling me before she just said she was so focused it was so funny she was like apologizing to me i'm like don't worry about it i'll never forget that i like i found it interesting that like she called me, but I didn't hear from my coaches or any other teammate for like almost six weeks. It was crazy. Like 
after the Olympics, there were a few World Cups left on the tour. So the Olympics just didn't mean the end of the ski season. It was just like a break in the middle of it. And so there was more World Cups afterwards. And I contacted Freestyle Canada and told them I was not attending those World Cups. Even though I had a spot for them, I was not going to ski in them. Um, it wasn't until like the team was actually there in Japan that I heard from any of the coaching staff. They were all like, where are you? <laughs> And it was then I decided to retire from the team and quit skiing competitively for good. I had the most sour taste in my mouth from the entire experience. Um, the ski association and the coaching staff disappeared when I needed them the most. And they I felt really disrespected and shunned. And I felt small and insignificant. And I just didn't have it in me to represent them any longer. And I was done. Like, in addition to that, I was so burnt out from all the training and the travel and the pressure and the not making it. And I, like, I wasn't having fun anymore. Like, it was just a combination of all of that stuff that just, like, I knew in my heart that I was done. I was done. I didn't want to do it anymore. Um, what I wanted to do was stay in bed. <laughs> so I stayed in bed for a total of, like, eight weeks, I think. And I, I, at that time I refused to see my friends and family. So I, like, I didn't know what to say to anybody. Everyone was rooting for me to go to the Olympics. I didn't want them to feel sorry for me. Like I didn't want people's pity. I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't, I just wanted to hibernate. So I did until the spring. <laughs> um, and the weeks and months that like followed that were, were the darkest of that I can remember. Like they were very, very dark. Um, this was my rock bottom. This was the first time I hit rock bottom and it was, it was very deep. Uh, and honestly, it still affects me today. I think, I think it was so hard because like I said earlier, I lost my identity and skiing was everything to me and it was gone now. And I had to mourn the loss of my dreams. It was like losing the closest thing to you, a loved one. It was losing that. So I I had to mourn it. I had to mourn it. And I didn't know how to mourn it. And no one could really like understand. There was no one to relate to in this experience. So I felt really alone with it. Um, I felt like I failed my family and my friends and the community. I mean, like I had the entire city behind me I, rooting for me. I used to write a column in the newspaper and I had fans and I was, it was the road to Torino and I talked about everything. I had so much support and, uh, oh my God. Um, so what I decided to do next was like horribly unhealthy. Um, I did go on. I, 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 I did go on, but <laughs> the only thing I could bare doing was to live an un unhealthy life was to punish myself. I was, I, I punished myself every single day. I drank every single day until I was drunk. Um, I ate all the food on the planet and I overate. I binged on whatever I wanted. Uh, I smoked cigarettes, um, lots of them. And I vowed to never go to the gym again. Actually, I vowed, the vow was actually to never do another squat again in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I did 40,000 million squats when I was on the ski team. I was like, never again. <laughs> um, anyways, I did all of those things like a true Olympic champion. Uh, and within, I don't know, 12 months, it was probably the more like 10 months, just, just under a year. 
uh, I gained 85 pounds. So now um, I was not only a failure in my own mind, but I was also fat and out of shape and miserable, like completely miserable. So all of this led to a self-esteem, like a self-esteem problem. I had a very, very low self-esteem, which then led to some very bad life decisions. You know, it's interesting when I'm making bad decisions in my life right now, it brings me back to this. And I'm thinking, I always think to myself, I'm, I, with awareness, I can think, what is my self-worth right now? What does my self-esteem look like? And then I can actually relate it to the decisions I'm making. So when I'm drinking too much or partying or like eating bad food, making bad choices, not going to the gym, not running, I'm like, why am I punishing myself? It's very interesting. Um, I, at, at, but back going back, like I was like a disaster person at this point, super low self-esteem. Um, I was still taking that Effexor uh, 300, by the way. Uh, which was contributing to the weight gain and all sorts of side effects. Like it was crazy. Um, but I, I just continued to take it cause I needed to like get through the day. I thought it was helping. It was probably like doing me more bad than good at this point, but who knows? Um, but now we're talking about adversity <laughs> and this was without a doubt the most unfortunate thing to happen to me. And then following the unfortunate events came even more unfortunate events. And I recognize now, now years later, that um, I was 100% responsible for all the things that I did. However, during, during it, living it, I blamed the world and everyone in it for the way I felt. Like my coaches, I blame them. I blame the association. I blamed the ski, my skis, the course, the ice, the my teammates, like everyone. Um, there, are, the truth is, there's probably a million ways that I could have handled the situation differently, but I guess at the time it was all I knew. It was the reaction. The only reaction I knew was to not take responsibility for myself and to blame other people, and it it took me like four. Or five years actually to wake up from this and if you want to know how I did wake up then listen to the first episode of this like podcast series of Elisa unfiltered it's called how I became aware it basically in that podcast I talk about how I woke up and I mean during the time four years five years later when I did wake up there was a lot of other shit going on um, however I was able to start letting go of the Olympic issue, the Olympic adversity event. So I held on to it and punished myself for that for like four or five years. It's crazy. Um, this this rock bottom, like the first rock bottom, um, like my second, it did have a silver lining as well because it showed me that I'm responsible. And the number one lesson I learned from all of this was that I'm responsible for my actions and for my beliefs about myself and for my reactions to situations, for my thoughts, for my self-care. Uh, I also learned how to forgive myself and how to forgive and let go and that I'm not just a skier. I am so much more and I am worthy of all things. I do know that there's still a wound inside of me from this experience. Like I've, I've mentioned earlier, I, I've not let all of the energy from it go. 
And why do I choose to hold on to it? I'm not sure. There's still something there to be learned. But I hope that with time and continued work that I'll be completely free from it at once and for all, you know? It's just so interesting to reflect on it now. <laughs> um, I don't tell this story very often, um, to be honest. Like, this experience, it made me stronger. It, After all these years, like, I'm grateful for it. Even though it still holds like a negative energy, I'm grateful for it. Um, it's led me to be who I am today. And I'm, I'm so proud of who I am today. I'm so grateful for all the experiences, good or bad, big or small, because I'm learning. I'm choosing to practice awareness. So going back to the beginning, I'm here today to tell the story of the most profound adversity I've ever faced. It still lives with me, but with awareness, I have learned a very profound lesson. On top of taking responsibility for my actions, the lesson that I've learned is this. Any identity that I adopt is not the real me. Who I am is, a, is far, far greater than that which can be contained in an identity or role. Any rule may die or dissolve, but I will remain. And with that, my story is over. <laughs> I hope that you guys enjoyed that one. Whew, that was a big one. Feel good. It's off the shoulders. <laughs> I want to take this time right now to thank you all so much for listening today. Man, it feels good to get that off my chest. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please head over to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review it. I need more reviews, everyone. And your feedback is actually so helpful for me. That being said, I hope you all have a fabulous Wednesday and a fabulous week. Until next time. Wow.